You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. It's so great to see you guys tonight. If this is your first time with us, we're grateful that you came and joined us. Fill out the connection card on your way out and drop it off on the offering box in the back. But I was reminded of the song today, kind of tied up with the verses that I'm reading tonight. It says in Jeremiah 10, verses 6 to 7, Lord, there is no one like you, for you are great and your name is full of power. Who would not fear you, O King of Nations? That title belongs to you alone. Among all the wise people of the earth and in all the kingdoms of the world, there is no one like you. And I love how in those verses, he kept mentioning that there is no one like God. And I hope here tonight that you would find those verses real to you. And thank you again for joining us. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Grace Heavenly Father, we come before you in your presence humbly, bringing nothing to you that of pride or arrogance, but Lord, we just come humbly before your throne because we need you, Father. And I pray for not only our church, I pray for our country, I pray for its citizens, I pray for its churches, I pray for its pastors. I pray that we would once again hear from heaven, that we would once again humble ourselves and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. I pray, Father, that you would use this time that we spend together. I pray that every heart in here would be encouraged and lifted to look to you, that they would see that you are sitting on the throne, that you are in charge, that we see that you are the God that's over all government, for the government is upon your shoulders. And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for giving us another week. And Lord, would you right now use the word of God to touch and convict, to do the work that I can't do. I pray that we would leave this place better for the time spent. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. If you have a copy of the word of God, would you turn to the book of Acts chapter number nine, Acts chapter number nine. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm so encouraged that I see so many Bibles in church now. Uh, you say, why is that a big deal? Because in Portland, where they want to make a habit of burning them, we're going to make a habit of bringing them and reading them and living them. And so it's one thing to uh, curse the darkness, but what's better is to simply turn on the light. And God's word is that light that's going to illumine, illuminate those dark areas. It's going to... Uh, change our lives. It'll, it'll purify our thinking. It'll, it'll do the work that we can't do. It'll, it'll start to separate out false ideas and false opinions, and it'll start to do a deep work in our hearts that only God and his word can do. And so I think it's so important that we uh, bring a copy of God's word. I know you have it on a tablet and on a phone, but there is something as you in this day and age where it seems that uh, church is more of a pariah in culture and going to church, but yet we have some people that as they leave their homes, you don't need to say where you're going. The, the fact that you're holding a Bible and it's Sunday, people naturally assume that there are some people that still believe that the word of God is essential, that church is essential, that fellowship with God's people is essential, and you're living that out in a day and age where that is counter-cultural. Never did I think that I would live in a United States of America where going to church was going to be something that uh, uh, it, it was a political statement, that it's become more and more divisive to say, I'm going to church and I'm going to gather and I'm going to worship with God's people and I'm going to carry a Bible with me. And so I'm so encouraged when I see people taking that stand because what I'm finding out now is the more of you that are bringing your Bibles to church, what's happening is you're starting to read it more and more as well. And so I'm so thankful for that. The next
next thing I'm graciously thankful for is the fact that many of you are bringing a journal with you. You're taking notes of God's word because I believe God's word is speaking truth to you. And uh, I believe he's speaking to this next generation and able to take notes of what God is speaking to you. And now you're able to carry that into the next season of what God has said to you. And I think it's so powerful and so important that we have a copy of not only God's word, but also what is God speaking specifically to you? I may put some thoughts and some things that God had said to me during my time of study, but yet he may speak to you in a different way. I uh, had a fellowship at my house last week, uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the parents said a testimony that their child had said to their parents. They said, you can read my notes, just not one part of my notes, and that they had written something very specific that God was dealing with them about, and it made me almost cry and made their parents cry, and I just thought, isn't that amazing that in this season, God is speaking not just to the oldest and wisest of us, but to the youngest and the next generation that God is still speaking. So if you'd like a journal, you'd like to take notes, we're making those free in the back available to you because we believe so strongly that not only should we hide God's word in our heart, but also that we take notes because note takers are history makers. Well, Acts chapter number nine, I wanna title this message, The Road, because life is a journey. Someone once said in a song, life is a highway and I wanna ride it all night long, but we know that life is a journey and we're on that journey. And someone has also wisely said that when, when it comes to uh, this road and we, the days we find ourselves on, it's a difficult road, but often the difficult road leads to the most beautiful destinations. And I think that could be so true for many of us where it seems at times where we wonder what is, God's do, what is God doing and why is he leading us to certain places and why would God uh, put up roadblocks and barriers and why would God allow delays and detours, but yet we see that through it all, God is using all of it. And it's so powerful to be able to look at God's word and see that, yes, we're on a journey, we're on a road. And I don't know about you, but I, I love to drive. I, I have no problem getting in a car and just driving as long as you wanna drive. I, I like to drive. My family would grow up, we would do cross country vacations in a van and we'd all load up and we'd just drive across the country and uh, didn't have a lot of money. So you get one night in a hotel, even though it took three days to drive there. So the rest of the time, it was like, you get one night in a hotel, which thinking back on it, I was like, yeah, out of three days, that was the one time I had a shower. Okay, all right, okay. I'm glad I didn't know any of you, especially not my wife back then. That would have made it very difficult. But you know, it's just how it was and we just drive. So I don't mind being in a car, I don't mind driving. And it's amazing the roads you can find yourself in. Uh, sometimes you find yourself on a detour. Sometimes you find yourself at a standstill. Sometimes you find yourself in traffic. Uh, uh, but you can find yourself in roads. And I love the fact that a road is going somewhere, but it connects you to also someone. You can, you can be on the Interstate 80 and that same road connects to states on the other side of the country. To me, that's just kind of neat. You can get on the Pan American Highway, which is 16,000 miles, and it crosses whole countries. And it's just amazing how roads connect us and how so much can happen on the road. And we're gonna pick up Acts chapter number nine, because a powerful uh, occurrence is gonna happen in the life of a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus on a road. And if you have God's word with me, would you out of respect for the word of God, please stand as we read a few verses together. I know I asked you to sit down, but then I'm gonna ask you to stand and we're gonna get our calisthenics. They said, it's good to stay healthy and in shape during quarantine and since the gyms are closed, well, I figure we'll do some up and down, standing, sitting, it'll help us. But let's go to Acts chapter number nine, beginning verse number one, the Bible says this. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, the way was what they called Christians. Christians didn't have a name. They, some were called believers, some were called of the way, some were called disciples. They didn't land on a name, okay? They hadn't, they hadn't taken a poll yet of what should be the official name. So Paul just at that time called them anybody who followed this way. They, they were still considered a sect of Judaism at the time, just a, a different way of Judaism. And so he said, I want to go and arrest them. And he said, I want to, whether they're men or women, I want to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. I want to, I want to load them up and I want to carry them back so that they can uh, face uh, sentencing in Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Understand, Damascus is 160 miles away 
from Jerusalem. This would have been a six-day journey that Saul of Tarsus would have found himself on. And notice what happens on the road. And as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple named, uh, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas to, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how he may suffer many things for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I want to look at several verses and just kind of go through chapter number nine. This is a powerful chapter and it's a powerful uh, transition on the road of Damascus because Saul of Tarsus is anyone who's grown up in the church or grown up in Sunday school. You're familiar with this man because Saul of Tarsus is a murderer. Saul of Tarsus is a persecutor. Saul of Tarsus was doing anything he could. His motivation, verse number one says he was breathing out threats against the church. This is his, you could reword it like this. Saul of Tarsus lived to kill Christians and to persecute Christians. That's what breathing out threats meant. It meant that he got excited when he got to put Christians in jail. It meant he got excited as they were arrested. He was excited as the life was flowing out of Stephen and he was dying. That's Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, who in that day, 160 miles doesn't seem that far. It's a little bit farther than going to Fresno, okay? Fresno's 120 miles. And it's just like going now to Tulare or something, okay? It's not that far of a journey, but on horseback, it would take six days. One does not simply go on a six-day journey, not to a major city, but going to Damascus, which is just north of Jerusalem. It's the city that all of a sudden Saul had heard that there's an uprising of Christians and he wanted to stamp it out wherever he heard about Christians. He wanted to go there and make sure that Christianity ceased, that they ceased meeting, they ceased gathering. He wanted to take anyone he found of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem. That man, Paul, the same man who later say in later books that he was the chief among sinners that he's the least of all saints. The one who said he brought, he did great havoc to the church, brought chaos to the church. This man Saul. I don't know if you and I can probably understand the transformation that's happened in this, that's gonna happen in this man's life. And that's the powerful thing. Because when it comes to God, God does not wanna just inform you about things. He does not simply want to reform you. God wants to transform you. He wants to bring you from death to life. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are become new. You see, God is not trying to pour old wine into old wineskins. No, no, he wants you totally new. That's why we call it the new birth. That's why so many people don't understand that we, we're not just here to reform people. I can't reform you. No, we need a transformation. We need to be totally be made new. And that's the work that God does inside of us at the moment of salvation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And that's the the desire that God had for Saul. What's so interesting about this passage of scripture was that Saul was not seeking God, but God was seeking Saul. Some of you may be on a direct opposite course, running from God, but understand that God is still running after you. 
Psalms 23 says, surely and goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word follow has this idea that it's actually chasing you down. That goodness and mercy is actually following hard after you. It's trying to catch up to you. You see, God is always pursuing and we find ourselves on this path, and many of you may be looking at this path, and you understand that life is this journey that you find yourself on, and you're wondering, God, what are you doing? And we can see that God is about to take a murderer and turn him into the greatest messenger in the New Testament. And we see that as he's on this road, first of all, he has a collision with Christ. We find that immediately, we don't know how far along he was on the journey, but I believe relatively close to the city of Damascus, that he sees a bright light. This light blinds him. He hears a voice. Even the men that are with him hear the same voice. And he finds out that this is Jesus Christ. This is why Paul could call himself an apostle because he saw the resurrected Jesus, the resurrected Savior. That's why we could call him the Apostle Paul because he had seen the resurrected Savior. And so it's on this, on this road that he has this collision with Christ. Many of you, if I were to ask you to share your salvation testimony, how did you hear about Jesus? It would be very much the same. You were headed in one direction and God kind of arrested your attention. He got a hold of you and turned you to a different path on on a different direction where he found where you were headed. And many of you may say, yes, I was living a lifestyle. I was living in a direction that was against God, not for God, but yet God got my attention much like he did for Saul. And it's a collision with Christ, but not only a collision with Christ, because he even says, who are you and what do you want me to do? But then I also see this, that there's a conversion to Christ. That at that moment, he's under this conviction for Christ. And this is this, this moment where he understands that, wait a minute, I've not been persecuting the church. I've been persecuting Jesus. I find it fascinating today how many people have such a blatant disregard for the church. And they're very, can I use the word willy-nilly about the church? that it's, it's not all that important nowadays. And this is not, I, I never expected people that are unregenerate, that don't know God, to understand the church. Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them. It's foolish. But to we who are saved, it, we understand what it is. It is the power of God unto salvation. We understand it. But a world that does not know God does not understand it. So I'm puzzled when Christians start siding with culture on what the church is or isn't where they want to say it's not that important, it's not that relative. But understand, if you were to try to be my friend, but yet you have a conversation over coffee and you say, hey, man, Pastor McGuire, I really like you. You're great. Your wife, on the other hand, I, I just have a hard time with. I would be a terrible husband, husband if I let you continue to tell me how you don't like my wife. We would not have a friendship. Now, what if you love my wife. You just think, my wife, Jane, just awesome. And you're talking with her and you're saying, Jane, you're the best. You're amazing. You can organize things like nobody's business. I love how all of your spices are labeled in alphabetical order. It's so convenient. Thank you for doing that. But your husband is a hot mess and I can't stand him. All of a sudden, she would tell you, or at least I believe she would tell you, is that we cannot be friends. Because we are one. As husband and wife, we are one. We're not two, we are one. God has brought us together. We are one person. So to say that I like Jesus, but I don't like the church doesn't work. To say I have a strong relationship with Jesus, but I don't need to do the church, it doesn't work. You see, Saul was persecuting Christians, and what did Jesus say he was actually persecuting? Him. When you go against the church, you're going against Jesus. So Christians today who think, ah, it's not essential, it's not a big deal. What are you actually going against? You're actually going against Jesus. That's, they're connected. So you can't divorce the two. Now, understand this. When it comes to the church, they're not, church and Jesus, they're not identical. But understand, they're not inseparable. You can't, they're not identical, but they're inseparable. Don't try, to, don't try to divorce the two. Don't try to separate the two. And I'm finding many Christians find it very easy to do that. They're saying, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. Excuse me. That's 
uh, 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 you don't understand how the church operates. You don't understand how it works. So that's why we put a high price on the church. And this is what we get when we study scripture. Do you understand why it's so important that you have the word of God in front of you? That we, we highlight and we mark it down and we take notes and we look at it? Because there'll be a lot of people today that they're gonna spout stuff and spew stuff, but if you don't know God's word, if you don't have God's word hidden in your heart, it's easy to be led astray. It's easy to think that it's wrong what church may or may not decide to open or close. And so we need to look once again at Scripture and what Scripture tells us to do. So he has this collision with Christ. He has a conversion to Christ. And then because of it, now he has a conviction for Christ. And that's what should happen in the life of every single believer. You should have some convictions about Jesus Christ. Now, convictions are not something you hold. Convictions are what holds you. Let me say it again. Convictions are not something you hold. Convictions are what holds you. We have a conviction that we believe some basic Bible doctrines, okay? We believe that the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. We believe in certain things like the virgin birth, blood atonement, salvation by grace through faith. We believe these things. Now, there are people that don't have that as a conviction, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime. We, these are convictions. We have these convictions, and these, and these are not popular today. But Christians who get into God's word will be given these convictions. And these are the, the, the glue that hold the family fabric, hold the church together. But today we live in a culture where it's okay for you to go to church, but don't go to a church that wants you to have convictions. Don't go to a church that stands by convictions. We need people that have convictions, people that have principles, because I'm tired of seeing so many Christians who just, they're, they're easily just distracted and diverted, and they're easily divided on this thing, and they don't understand where their convictions come from. Our convictions come from God's Word. And Paul is now, as much as he was against the church, he's going to do a 180, and for the rest of his life, he's going to be for the church, because this man, Paul, is going to write 13 books of the New Testament. He's going to take the gospel to the entire known world in his day. He's going to be there to inspire the next generation of preachers like Timothy, like Titus, and Barnabas, and Mark. He's going to inspire people who are then going to go on to also write parts of the New Testament. And so this man, God is going to use in a profound way. Many secular scholars would agree that apart from Jesus, the biggest figure in ancient history is Saul of Tarsus. They say, if you remove Saul of Tarsus and Jesus, you have no Christianity, you have no foundation. That's how big of a deal it was that Saul of Tarsus has this collision with Christ. At my college, my Bible college, I took a course on the life of Saul, later turned Paul. It's an important class to take. I'm sure I got an A++ in the class. Just positive. Why are you laughing? You know that's not true. That's why you're laughing. You know it's probably like maybe Jane helped you to finally skate by. C's get degrees, y'all, okay? Just, just want to say that right now, okay? So we understand that there's this road and here's this character, Paul, and Saul, he's on this road and God's gonna get a hold of him. This person who had one motivation, one agenda, and that was to stamp out any Christians, anyone who was a follower of the way. And God comes to him in this monumental moment and turns his life around. And I love it, but I see that he came to a crossroads, much like you and I will come to a crossroads. So on this road that you find yourself, there will be crossroads. I believe our nation is at a crossroads. I believe our church is at a crossroad. I believe for you sitting in the pew in your heart, you're sitting at a crossroads. Deciding which direction you're about to go. As the poet Robert Frost once said, I walked into a yellow wood thereby and saw a path, and I took the one less traveled by, and that made all the difference in the world. He came to a crossroad, and I believe as Christians in the United States of America, you're at a crossroads, because as I see the church splintering and fracturing and picking popular culture opinion, instead of once again going to God's word and laying out their proof text for why they're doing what they're doing, instead we're motivated by fear, we're motivated by expediency, we're motivated by safety, we're motivated by just all these things. Instead of saying, wait a minute, what is the motivation 
for a Christian, for a Christ follower, where do we get our convictions from and where do we stand on our convictions? Because in the United States of America, we're living in a day and age where uh, 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 we're okay with watching people burn Bibles, we're okay with judges calling an emergency meeting to put a, a restraining order against a pastor in Ventura County to make sure he does not open his church because what is our, our country's coming to? Although our state sees fit to release 17,803 criminals onto our streets, but yet let's make sure they don't go to church. Let's make sure they don't hear the preaching. I've already said to you that George Barna in his survey produced a poll that said one out of every three Christians has stopped watching online. So we're not getting more of God's word. Then you close down the churches so less people are attending. I talked to one church leader who their church was running 3,500 pre-COVID. Now they're having some type of an in-person gathering. They're having 45 attend. Nobody's going to church. And what do we need more now than ever? Not less church, but more of it. What do we need more of? We need more of God's word in our hearts. And I'm encouraged by the fact that I'm hearing so many of you who you're getting into God's word. That's what you need. But many of us are isolated. And when we're isolated, we can be easily influenced by Satan. And that's what he's doing. And some of us, we don't see through it. We don't see the deceiver, how he's deceiving. We're blinded. And we need to wake up and say we're at a crossroads. And at this moment of crossroads, we need to see what would God have us do? Because Saul came to a crossroads here. And he's not the only one who came to a crossroad. You're going to meet a disciple, not an apostle, not a pastor, not an evangelist, not a deacon, a disciple, which just meant an everyday Christian by the name of Ananias. And God is going to appear to Ananias in a vision and say to Ananias, Ananias, I need you to go and meet with somebody by the name of Saul of Tarsus. I need you to pray over him and I need you to lay hands on him. And I want you to be an influence in that man's life. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about this guy. He has done much harm to the Christians. Are you sure it's that Saul? Ananias was at a crossroad. He wasn't sure if he wanted to go to Saul's house and to heal this man, even though God told him to. I find it interesting that it wasn't until God says that Saul's going to suffer that he finally went. It was almost like, as long as he's going to get some payback, I'll go. Some of you are like that. Yeah, I'll go help somebody. I'll go help them move into their house as long as their house isn't bigger than my house. You know, if they have a bigger house, I don't want to help them. I don't want to see their house if it's nicer than my house. Somebody needs to ride over to buy a car. As long as they're not buying a car that's better than my car. And, and we get like that. We get petty. So he was at a crossroads, much like I find we are at a crossroads. But many Christians are making the wrong decision. And hear me on it. We're making some poor decisions. We're making some poor decisions where we live in a state of California and there are millions of Christians who they will not stand up and stand for Jesus on what is right and what is wrong. Instead, we would rather go into the streets and protest about other things instead of understanding that, wait a minute, the greatest thing that I can do for somebody is to share Jesus. I understand we need to give away backpacks. I understand about helping feed the poor, but the greatest thing you and I can do is to tell somebody that there is a loving heavenly father who sent his son Jesus to die on a cruel cross who resurrected three days later, and they can be saved from an eternal hell. Because if, you, if there was no eternal hell, then I would say, sure, let's make heaven as good as, it, or earth as good as it can be. But if you believe in a literal and eternal hell, which scripture talks about, and Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about any other subject in the New Testament. Study it. Just do a basic word search in any Bible app and type in the word hell and Jesus talked about it more than any other subject. But what is the one topic that we talk the least about in our churches? Hell. And what's happening now is people don't believe that I need one. Why would there be a hell? I'm not gonna go to hell because Joel Osteen said I'm 99.9% .9 good. So why would a loving God say, send somebody to hell who's 99.9% .9 good? God, a loving God wouldn't do that. Well, that's a misrepresentation of who God is. I find it interesting that we're all about social justice today, but that when God is about justice, he cannot be about justice. Only we get to be about justice. You see, God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. There's gotta be justice. So when God is just, that's not allowed, but you and I are supposed to be about justice? Excuse me, that's wrong. But that's the culture we find ourselves in, where people want to get on their pet social gospel projects and understand, we're going to give away backpacks. I'm going to push hard against this. 
I'm not just here to give away backpacks to make sure kids can have little school supplies. They need Jesus more than anything else. They need to hear about the gospel more than anything else. Otherwise, let's never give away anything free again. If we're not gonna talk about Jesus, then I don't wanna be a part of it because our church has done that for far too long. I'm the one, you talk to the staff, I'm the one that said, how many backpacks are going away? Let's give away less because I wanna make sure we talk to every person. They're like, no, let's give away more. I've been constantly pushing back. I'm like, okay, then we need to have Bibles. We need to have, remember gospel tracts? Remember the gospel tracts where it had the Romans road on the back? It talks about for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Remember that? Some of you are like, no, we need to have a class on how to evangelize and how to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus because that's the most important thing. Because we're not just here to just fill up time. No, we're here at a crossroads where America's greatest need, our greatest need in this community, in this city, is Jesus. And that's maybe a boring theme to you. Maybe you say every Sunday, you just keep talking about preaching about the gospel, preaching about the gospel, preaching about the gospel. Unless you haven't noticed, we're nine chapters into the book of Acts. That's all the church did was preach about Jesus because that's all the church is supposed to be about, Jesus. We've made the church about us, and it was never supposed to be about us. It's not to pat ourselves on the back that we gave away backpacks. It's to pat ourselves on the back and say, how many people are going to be baptized from that backpack giveaway? So don't show up unless you're ready to pray with that person and hand them a backpack and say, can I pray with you? Do you know Jesus is your Savior? Can I give you a Bible? How can I point you to Jesus? Because shame on us for being a church that will help somebody have a good time on their way to hell. Shame on us if we're a church that helps people have a good time on their way to hell because we will stand and give account. You see, I find it so fascinating that God tells Ananias to lay hands on a man whose hands have blood on them because that's what Saul was. He was a bloody man. He had blood on his hands and God sent Ananias and Ananias had to get over his crossroads and go and say, yes, I will make a difference in this person's life. And I find it so powerful that his touch led to a turning point in somebody's life. You see, the moment you touch somebody's life can be a turning point in their life. And many of us right now are so afraid to touch somebody else's life. And I get it. You say, well, no, no, I need social distance. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can pay for somebody's dinner. You could set up a coffee meeting. You can go deliver groceries. You can babysit their kids. You can do wash their car, mow their lawn. You can do something to touch somebody's life around you that then will open the door for you to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we do these things. We're looking for an opportunity to point them to Jesus. So the moment of touch can be the moment of a turnaround for this person. It was for the life of Saul. You say, what do you mean? Notice if you would. I love it. Verse number 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and arose and was baptized. You see, I love this. You know, Ananias knew that God was gonna use Saul before Saul knew that God was gonna use him because God had revealed it to Ananias because Ananias is saying, hey, this is a vile person and God said, no, that's my chosen vessel. So we need to be careful about who we call vile because God says, that's my chosen vessel. So be careful when you see a child running around church with a bloody, with a, a little snot nose and acting kind of bratty, they may be your next pastor. Better be nice to them. They may be the next leader, the next Billy Graham. They may be the next great Christian leader that saves our country, that turns us around. And they may be the one that God says, hey, parent, don't call your son or daughter vile because that's a chosen vessel. Hey, don't, grandparent, don't look at your grandkids and, and name them something. God may tell you, no, no, there's something there that I want to use. And so God had to help Ananias see what God saw, and God saw something different. You see, Ananias said, I see fear. I see all this. Ananias even said, I've heard about him. I think what's shameful is today we've heard things that stop us from helping people. You see, Ananias didn't want to help him. Why? Because of what he had heard. And some of us, because of what we're feeding ourselves on the news, uh, I read another statistic yesterday. It says Americans are coping with the pandemic, with all the politics, with all the garbage you and I are dealing with every second of every day, which is more TV. We're binge watching more TV like there's no tomorrow. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to medicate. Just trying to medicate. 
All of a sudden now we just don't know what to do with ourselves. Man, it'd be great if we just said, you know what, I got extra time, let's get into God's word. I'm gonna binge read the Bible. Man, let me just get into God's word and see God's word get into me and just see what happens. Just see what it does to my marriage. Just see what it does to my job, what it does for my community. You see, we're at a crossroads, but many of us are crossing the wrong side of the road. We're heading in the wrong direction instead of saying, God, help me to see what you see. You see, God always has a plan for persecutors and his plan for persecutors is to turn them into preachers. And I'm afraid many of us have let what we heard stop us from helping. And we're in an hour where every Christian should be rising up and saying, how can I help and evangelize the lost? How can I be like the early church, the first church, who even in spite of pain, even in spite of persecution, they went everywhere preaching Jesus. And you can do it because Ananias was not Bible college seminary trained. He was just a disciple that had a walk with God. And as he was praying, God met with him and said, hey, nobody, because Ananias is nobody. After this, you never hear from him again. This is it, one time the nobody who reached the somebody. You see, you may think I'm a nobody at my job. Nobody knows me, I'm nothing special. Here I'm just in the Silicon Valley, several million people, nobody knows about me, but God may use you to touch the one person who'll touch the world. So don't look at your situation and think God's not gonna use me. Yes, if God can use a random lad with a random lunch to feed 5,000, if God can use just a simple little thing as that, he can use each and every one of us and he's looking to use each and every one of us. But we've gotta step back and say, all right, Lord, I wanna be used by you. You see, his touch turned him to Jesus Christ. You see, I love how he touched his enemy and he turned him from darkness to light quite literally because he was blinded, he couldn't see. And the moment of that touch, all of a sudden he went from, light to, from darkness to light and that's what the gospel does. It transforms people. You can have a political debate with somebody, you can have a social justice debate with somebody, you can have any kind of theological debate with somebody, but the most important thing is that we turn men from darkness to light, that we point them to Jesus who's the light unto all mankind. That's the most important thing. I love what Dr. Adrian Rogers, the late great preacher said, a Christian is not someone who has become nice, but someone who has become new. And that's the goal, is that we don't just make nice people, we help make new people. Now ultimately we know that we have no part in making them new, Jesus does. But that's the greatest privilege, is that God uses us to tell others. I like what one preacher said, he said I'm just a, Beggar telling another beggar where to go find the bread, the bread of life, that's Jesus. That's all we do, that's all we're a part of is just telling others about Jesus. And I love how he, he, he touches him and now he's turned his life around for Christ. But then I love the fact that in verse number 19, it says, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent several days with the disciples at Damascus and verse 20, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the son of God. So they. So Saul is taught and then he teaches. I love that. I love that he spent a couple days being discipled by these disciples and they did a great job discipling Saul because look what Saul goes on to do. It's kind of like, wow, look at him go. I mean, out of, out of little city of Damascus, God's gonna send this powerhouse for the gospel out of this little city and this little group of disciples, only one we know his name and that's Ananias and they're gonna disciple him and he's gonna go on to do a great job. And I'm so proud of you parents in this season, so proud of you because you're bringing your kids into church and I know we don't have a Ridge Kids program for anybody over the age of three or four or if, if you make them squat down, maybe they can pass as a four or five year old or something like that and get them into Ridge Kids. But, but I see seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds, they're in church and you know what I'm so proud of you parents because instead of giving them an iPad, you gave them one of these and then you gave them a notebook and said, hey, you're in church right now and then this season, you can go an hour and a half without a tablet or an iPhone and you can pay attention, this will be good for you. And I'm so proud of you parents. I'm so proud of you parents because this is, the, this is a great moment. Yeah, let's celebrate our parents. Thank God for our parents. It's not easy being a parent during a pandemic. Hey, it's not easy being a parent anytime. And then you keep them locked up 24 seven. God bless you parents. And now many of you are gonna be homeschooling. Now we'll all commiserate together. You used to laugh at my homeschooling jokes. Now you'll understand and y'all be dumb like me. It'll be great. I feel like equals. 
But I'm so proud of our parents because I love what Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Many of you parents have stepped into a role of parenting your child and training of your child like, any, like no other season before. You're just there. Your child needs your influence. A disciple, a new disciple, a new Christian needs that influence. And many of you parents, you're, you're saying, you know what? This is kind of like a do-over. This is kind of like a reset. I, I can tune out and jump on TV or jump on my iPad, but you know what? This is a good season to get down on my knees and, 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 and play with my kids and talk to them about Jesus and pray with them and get down by their bed at night and say, before you go to sleep, let's pray. What are your prayer requests? And, and what's going on in your heart? And have a conversation with your children because we live in a day and age where it's so busy. Mom and dad. It's so hard in the Silicon Valley. It's so hard to work at your tech job. They're constantly pulling you and they constantly want more and more and more. And you feel like you have less and less to give. And who ends up getting the short side of the deal is the children. They're the ones suffering. And so the government and culture says, well, we'll raise them and look what a fine job they've done with all our millennials. And it's just, just out there shutting down freeways and burning buildings and burning flags and saying it's racist to be a cop and telling it's, it's terrible. And all of a sudden, now we've got a whole generation that we've got to almost start over and say, Lord, help Help us to start over. Help us to once again get back to this next generation and not lose this next generation. So let's teach and let's train. And that's what they did with Saul. They said, we're going to teach him and we're going to train him. I'm so proud of parents. So proud of your parents. I'm convicted by your parents. Last Sunday night, we had a get together at our house. So proud of our worship team. They worked so hard. So I wanted to honor them. I wanted to celebrate them. And I also wanted to celebrate Jacob Schwartz's birthday last week. It's not too late. He takes belated birthday cards and gift cards. He likes Visa. He has a Venmo account and a Cash App account, just in case you're wondering. So I wanted to celebrate that. So we had everybody over to my house. And you know, if you've ever been to my house, you know you're not leaving my house till you share a testimony. You say, what is a testimony? A testimony is what is God doing in your life? You have to talk. No matter how shy you are, you're going to say something. We don't let you leave until you do. And so we went around the group. Man, they were good. They were really good, except for one was super convicting. It's Courtney's. She said, I've been going through my day just kind of running out the clock on God, trying to run out the clock on my day so I didn't have to spend time with God. She said, I was convicted by that. All of a sudden, I wanted to call up Trisha Flanagan and be like, you need to write a parenting book because I need to read it, and I want to raise kids like you're raising kids because that girl can preach. All right, I was like, give me two more points and I got Sunday's message. So just, just, we'll stay here a while. Everybody else, you guys can go, see ya. All right, what was that? It's profound. Because when people understand what it's really about, it's all about God. Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There's a priority right there. There's a precedent right there that our life is to be centered around God, that God is at the center of it all, and that God wants us to no longer make little idols out of all these things we make little idols out of. We make idols out of our job. We make idols out of social media. We make idols out of our money. We make idols out of our image. We make idols out of our spouse. We make idols out of our children. We make idols out of everything because our hearts are little idol-making factories. And until we once again say, God, you are first and foremost, and God, you need to dethrone all these idols that I put in my heart. And that's what happens when we say, I'm going to stop running out the clock on my day, just trying to fill up my day and say, God, I was just too busy. So at the end of the day, it's uh, real quick. All right, God, let's get a verse in. Instead of prioritizing God and say, you know what? I'm, I want this. And you know where she learned that? She learned it from a parent. I love how 2 Timothy talks about how Saul or Paul is writing to Timothy and says, hey, you learned this from Lois and Eunice your godly mother and grandmother. These things are passed down. We've got to teach and train this. This is an opportunity for us, church, to train our next generation, to train our children where they love God. Don't, don't kid yourself that God can't, can't work through an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old. Some of the greatest prayers you will ever hear will come out of a child. Why do you think Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus surrounded himself by children. But he said, unless you become like a little child, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Understand there's something, even when he said, let your faith be like childlike faith. Our kids just trust us. They don't know that you're hurting financially. They don't know all the difficulty and the weight you bear. But when you come home, they just want to be with you. They just want you. And God wants the same relationship. That God just wants you to want him. That's all he wants. For you to want him to want to be around him, for you to want to hear his voice because you know he hears your voice. And so here, Saul, he's taught and then he teaches. 
and it's powerful. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And we kick the Bible out of our schools and our public education. Finally, we have a president that said, I'm gonna pass legislation where you can pray in school because that's been persecuted and bullied. We used to have a day, it was called see you at the pole, where we pray at the pole. Many schools were told they can't do that. You know, I think we've been asleep as Christians for too long in our country. I think we've just been asleep at the wheel, just kind of, it's all right. And I think God is finally bringing us to a crossroads moment. And I think some of us are uncomfortable with it because we kind of want to go back to sleep and turn on the TV and just binge watch and just kind of tune ourselves out and not really get into God's word, not really, really have to do anything. We just kind of want everybody else to do it all for us because that's what our government says, that, hey, we'll be cradled to the grave. We'll take care of everything. And we just kind of expect God to just do everything and always make you feel good instead of diving into God's word and say, wait a minute, I want to live right. I want a life that honors and pleases you. I read a quote several weeks ago, and I wrote it down years ago, and I don't know who the author is, but he said, teach me, old man, what my young heart doth not know, and teach me to live out my days in splendid struggle for a cause. We need a cause that is greater than closing down the 101 freeway between Cochran and, Max and Maston. You turn around and say Maston or Mason or Mastine? I don't know. But I think there's causes that are greater. How about human trafficking? There's a greater cause. How about abortion? A million babies in the United States will be aborted. That's a cause. How about taking the gospel to unreached people groups across the world? There's a cause. Young man, young woman, there is better causes out there that you can follow. There's greater causes. And forgive the church for not inspiring this generation to live out their days in splendid struggle for a cause. We have a great cause. There is no cause greater than that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But yet we are cheapening and we are mishandling your youth by giving you false causes. Because if Satan can't get you to, to just be... Uh, uh, Gone and out of the way, he'll just get you so busy with things that don't matter. Things that you look back in your life and think, what did I actually accomplish? What did I do? We as Christians are at a crossroads and where is our cause? And the church is being woefully silent on what are true causes. Understand for just a second, you're seeing the gospel go out to places and go out to people groups. It went to Samaria first. That was an ethnically diverse area where the gospel went out to. You see, God wants us to use this moment, and you stand at a crossroads. And what are you gonna do at the crossroads? Are you gonna choose the conviction? To say, I follow Jesus, and I follow his word. I said there's a road, I said there's a crossroad, but I see there's a narrow road, and few there be that find it. I think that's true of the church. I know some of you, and I know pastors, and God bless them, pray for every pastor. Not just me, every pastor, pray for him. They're under such a stress, such a strain. Many of them are laying off staff right now, not sure how to make financial means across the board. There's, it's, it's, it's tough, it's a struggle for many. And I think even in the church, as we look at Matthew 7 and, and, and do that, let's go to Matthew 7. Notice verse 13. I want you to see this if you have a, God's, a copy of God's word. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few that find it. I don't know if you've ever been on a trail early in the morning. My wife and I, we went and hiked in Kauai and uh, there was a hike she wanted to do. It was really early in the morning. It's dark out, we didn't have any lights. So I just turned on my cell phone light and I was like, here we go. And we started to want, go up this winding path. And they had marked it on rocks with little arrows where to go. And I had misread one of the markings. And I said, it's saying we got to go straight up. And I was like, that's where the path is. And she was like, are you sure? I don't think, it, I think it goes over here. Always listen to your wife. Just, just saying, just saying. And I was like, no, it's this way. So we started marching up some mountainside. We've never been here. We've never done this. She's just being a good wife. And God bless her. She's getting a bigger mansion than I am and more crowns than I am. And she just followed me. And then sure enough, as we're, we're hiking, I was like, yep, this is definitely the wrong way because now we're just climbing sheer rocks. And I was like, I don't think this is what all trails meant as a great hike. 
So we're now like, there's no going back, mind you. It's not like, oh, my bad, turn around. No, it's only forward, which when you're hiking and climbing and you're now rock climbing, that can only get worse because then you can get to a spot where you're stuck and then you've used up all your cell phone because it's dark and then make matters worse. We heard some other hikers and because they heard uh, my wife lovingly chiding me that you idiot, we're going the wrong way. They were like, that's the way, let's go that way, you know? And they started following. And I think that's how many Christians, if you would just simply go the right way, your children would go the right way, your family would go the right way. Many dads, if you would just go the right way, your wife would go the right way. Many companies and presidents and managers, if you would just go the right way, other people just follow you. I know we can just get mad at the world, mad at culture, but how about the church just go the right way? How about we just say the narrow way is the way. I know it's not as popular. I know it's not as easy. I know it doesn't have all the glittering lights, and I know it's going to buck the trend a little bit. I know it's not going to be popular, but we're going to do the right thing. We're going to go the narrow way because this is the way that leads to life, and I want life for my children. I want it for my family, and I want it just not for my children, but my children's children. I want to have a legacy that follows and pursues God, and so what happens is we need to direct people to the right path, that narrow path, that narrow gate, and I know it's not popular. I know many of you you're afraid to talk about things at your work and you're afraid to actually voice your opinions and you're afraid. I'm praying for you. I'm not here to chastise or berate you, but I'm praying for you that you would have a bold witness for Jesus because I believe the moment you started to speak out, you would hear people that they would just be like, oh, you're right. And your jaw's gonna hit the floor like, I'm right. I thought they would just be so upset when I told them what was actually true. You know how many people are grateful for somebody that tells them the truth, whether they receive it right away or not? They're thankful for somebody who's at least honest enough because they know it took guts and they know that you risked the relationship to tell somebody what they truly, genuinely needed to hear. And that's the best thing that we can do. And so we gotta remember that we're leading people and there's a narrow way. And in this narrow way, I love the testimony that these men led because it would have been real easy for them to get mad at Paul because Paul gets converted and Paul gets saved and God uses Paul. And then we see that he tries to go to the church of Jerusalem in verse number, would you notice it back in chapter nine, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. And notice verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him and that he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. I love the fact that we pray for enemies of the gospel. We don't push them away. We pray for them. We don't push them away. There may be somebody who votes differently than you, acts differently than you, has everything that's anti against you, but yet we're supposed to pray for them. We're supposed to pray for them, not push them away. And that's initially what the church was doing. They were pushing away Paul. They didn't believe that his life had changed. They didn't believe he had had a radical conversion. They didn't believe that he was actually, truly, genuinely a Jesus follower. In this moment, they were just pushing him away. And Barnabas says, no, 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 he is. You know who was praying for him, though? You say, I, I don't, Pastor, I don't see anybody here praying for uh, Saul in this passage. Where did you get that? You don't have time, but Acts chapter number 7, verse number 60 a man by the name of Stephen, as he was dying. Many of us have heard the phrase, famous last words. Well, Stephen didn't have famous last words. He had a famous last prayer. His prayer was simply this, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And I believe he was looking Saul of Tarsus in the eye when he prayed it. And God answers his prayer two chapters later, where God was not gonna lay the sin to his charge because he laid that charge on his son, Jesus. And Jesus paid the ultimate price Saul's sin, his murder, his pride, his anger, his fighting against the church, the rebellion of kicking and pushing against the church and working against God. It was at that moment that Stephen's prayer was answered. You see, God is answering some of your prayers. Or God would answer some of the prayers, but you're not praying. You're not asking. I'm reminded of, in this day and age, you turn on the news, you feel helpless. You feel like, what hope do I have? I'm a nobody. And it's at those moments we fall to our knees and we say, God, I gotta give this to you. God, I gotta pray for this person. I disagree with the person I'm watching on TV, so I'm gonna pray for them. 
I disagree with this situation, so I'm gonna pray against that situation. I'm gonna pray that God would move in this situation. You know, many of you don't know who actually won World War II. You say, yes, I do know. The RAF and the, the Allied and the United States, we won it. Wrong, we didn't. You owe and I owe the winning of World War II to Reese Howells. How many have ever heard of Reese Howells? Didn't think so. My mentor gave me a book a couple weeks ago. I said, hey, I'm, I'm trying to read about revivals and read about prayer. And he said, have you read Reese Howells' books yet? I said, I've never even heard of Reese Howells. He said, well, he's the man that won World War II. And I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, nope, got to go read the book. See, Reese Howells was a man that he was from a small little island in Wales, and he was convicted about praying. And he was convicted that he couldn't fight a war, so he would pray in a war. And so Reese Howells began to intercede 12 hours a day nonstop during World War II, and he began to pray directly against the attacks of Hitler. You see, you and I think that we're wrestling against flesh and blood. We still fall for that, but we don't understand. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This war was not waged on a battlefield with a gun and with some airplanes and with some torpedoes and with submarines and ships. We've got to stop looking at this with the carnal. And we've got to stop and step into the spiritual realm that we understand how we fight against days like this is we fight on our knees. That's how a Christian fights. We once again turn to prayer. And Reese Howells began to get an army that began to pray nonstop to pray against the armies of Hitler and began to pray against it. And if you read the book, it documents each absolute battle that he would pray against and pray that things would happen, like a fog would come in and block the enemy, and just incredible miracles that Reese Howells began to pray with his band of about a hundred people. They just interceded, and they just began to pray nonstop, and so what you and I think as, oh, we own the, we owe the victory to Eisenhower, and we, we owe the victory to these other people that they won the victory. No, 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 no. We owe the victory to those who knew how to fight it, and that was they fought it on their knees. There's a battle to be won right now, and don't mistake that you are a soldier in the Lord's army. And there's a battle to be fought, and the battle is fought through prayer. And I know some of you are kind of like, yeah, sure, whatever. But I'll tell you what kind of prayers don't cut it. Dear Lord, thank you for this food. Uh, uh, yeah, we don't like it, but she made it, and so I gotta be happy. We're gonna eat it. Thank you, amen. Yeah, that, that's not praying. That's not praying. That's rote habit that's this is just what we do we're a christian so we we give a little ditty before we before we eat some food no 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 no. that's not what changes people's hearts and lives you see for stephen it was a prayer that says hey i can say one last thing i can do one last thing on this earth what's the best thing that i can do what is the most powerful and important thing that i can do i got i got 60 seconds left on the clock jesus what can i do with 60 seconds we don't look at life that way do we Look at the life like I got a clock and God knows when my clock's going to run out and what can I do in this moment? And the clock is ticking on each of us. Tick tock, tick tock. We're running out of time and we just want to sit there and fritter it away. Where Stephen, he's watching and he's saying, I can, I can give some great quotes. I can say something, something that they'll remember in the annuals of history. But instead, what did he do? He said, with my dying breath, I'm going to pray one last time. And God says, wow, that's what you do with the time you have on the clock. You see, as a church of God, we don't know how much time we have on the clock. And the greatest thing we can do is to say, Lord, I want to commit this time to prayer, to seeking you, because God doesn't just want to inform people, reform people. He wants to transform people. And only a Holy Spirit of God can do that. I can inform people and I can reform people, but I can't transform anybody. Only through the power of the Holy Spirit can that happen. And I do not possess that power. That power possesses me. And that power, I pray that God will use. And we pray that God would change this world. But many of us, are much like Saul, kicking against conviction. God knows that he, he's calling you at this crossroads. And do you get what he's doing? He said, you're kicking against the goads. You ever heard of a cattle prod? You see, 
God was using imagery that it's like this ox that's kicking against this sharp stick and it's, it's cutting you, it's digging into you. And many of you, instead of surrendering to God, instead of saying, God, I, I will do what you want me to do, you're fighting against it. And God is saying, it's time to surrender. It's time to lay it down before Jesus. Stop kicking against conviction and surrender to Jesus. And that's how the greatest murderer became the greatest messenger, because he surrendered. Billy Graham went to Los Angeles in the 1950s and preached a crusade. A famous actor by the name of Stu Weber, he was in a lot of the Western movies, came forward and gave his life to Christ. <clears throat> Stu Weber had a great friend, his name was John Wayne. He went to John Wayne and he said, John, it's no secret what God can do, what he did for me he'll do for you. And at that moment, John Wayne looked at him and said, that'd make a great song, Stu. And that's where we got the song. It's no secret what God can do. What he did for me, he'll do for you. You see, God came to save sinners, which Saul said, I'm the chiefest. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm gonna steal a bottle of water from Calvary. God forgive me but I don't want you to think I have the virus or anything like that I literally saw a sign this week said no coughing allowed I was like okay it's like alright I'm going to leave then or do you just cough on purpose just to annoy him I know your pastor pray for him two roads diverged in yellow wood thereby I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference in the world. I'm gonna ask the worship team to please come up on the altar. I believe that God is up to something. But for too long, we just think this road is just life. And we've kind of taken what the United States is all about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we think that's what Christianity is all about. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of my happiness. When in reality, the gospel is about taking up our cross and following him and telling others about Jesus. And Courtney is right. We need to stop running out the clock on our day. Isn't that sad that that's where we've come to? We would rather preoccupy our time with everything that does not matter to the infinite one who does matter gets slighted. And what's happening is, is we're leading a generation down that path. And it's time for the church to say, okay, it's time to go by that narrow path. We're on that road, aren't we? It's the road, we're at a crossroads and we gotta follow the narrow road. Or we can continue to say, you know what? I'm gonna follow culture and we'll be destroyed by it. It's time that we say, Lord, I'm gonna follow you. I'm giving you my all. Let's all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. Gracious Heavenly Father, I believe so strongly that you want to meet with more people who are running from you. I believe that you want to save sinners. I believe you want to restore the broken. I believe you want to forgive the hurting. I believe you want to do great things through the most unlikely of people. And Lord, I pray that it begin right here in this church, that it start right here with me, that as I stand at the crossroads, but as we stand here, we would make the decision to follow you. That we would come to a turning of the ways. We would depart from the old life. And we would choose you. We'd stop trying to kick against what you're doing and surrender to it. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I believe that God is speaking and many hearts are hearing, listening. And if you say this evening, afternoon, Pastor, would you pray for me? I, 
God's speaking to me. He's challenging me about this crossroads. Can I pray for you? You just slip up your hand. Is that you? Amen. I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. You put that hand down. Or maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I'm like Saul pre-conversion. I don't know Jesus, but I'd like to know him. And if that's you, would you slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Is that you? You don't know Jesus? I see that hand. Anybody else? I see that hand. Amen. Amen. I see that hand. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, you see these hands that are raised up to you, signifying they want to know you. They want to follow you. They want to repent of their sin. And they want to come to a merciful, gracious God and receive the gift of salvation. Father, would you hear their hearts cry? Would you help them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.